Welcome to episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101, the foundations of our Catholic faith. These episodes originally premiered on YouTube. You can find the original video linked in the description to this episode, as well as a discussion guide for your benefit and whoever you might be listening with. A friendly reminder and invitation to please, if you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. It's such a great way to get this podcast out there and for you to share it with others. But remember, the highest compliment you could pay this podcast and myself is to share this episode or any episode on social media. And you can do that by simply posting it on your story or tagging us in a post. At Mana Food for Thought is our Instagram handle. At Mana F4T is our Twitter and our Facebook page is just Mana Food for Thought. You can find all of that on our website, manafoodforthought.com, as well as all of our previous content. And if you'd like to become a financial sponsor for as little as $1 a month, you can do that by clicking on the Patreon tab on our website. If you have not yet done so, I really want to invite you to check out our friends at Thrive Coffee. It's Coffee with a Mission. Their website is drinkthrive.org, and they are a nonprofit craft coffee roaster in Richmond, Virginia. They use coffee to create careers and training opportunities for individuals with disabilities. Uh, they ship nationwide. Their beans are locally roasted in small batches. They make blends, and three bags sold pays for one hour of work for their differently abled employees. So go to drinkthrive.org, buy a few bags, and if you use promo code MANA, M-A-N-N-A, at checkout, you will get 15% off your first order. With that being said, enjoy the next installment in episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101. Enjoy. I have a younger sister, and growing up she was sometimes frustrated that there seemed to be a different set of rules for me than there were for her. You see, I had less rules being the oldest, but as a result, I got in more trouble. And my sister had more rules, probably because my parents had a trial run with me that they learned from. But as a result, my sister never really got into any trouble growing up. You know, rules can be frustrating if we look at them simply as things that we cannot do. But they can be freeing when we realize how they protect us, save us, and make us better. You've heard the phrase, rules were made to be broken. But with God, his rules prevent us from being broken. See, when God delivered the Hebrew people out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses, he led them to a mountain called Mount Sinai. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 19. And while they were there, he gave them his law. 613 laws to be exact, all of which the Jewish people were eventually expected to memorize by about the age of 10. Now that seems like a lot, but you have to understand that God chose his people to be holy, which means set apart. And they had been in Egypt for so long, 200 to 400 years, that they had become like the Egyptians. God wanted to give them a way of life that showed them that they were different now. He needed to go back to the basics and give them guidance in every area of their lives to show them how to be in relationship with him and with one another in such a way that they weren't falling into the same sinful practices of Egypt or the other nations and cultures around them. So he gives them these 613 laws. And these laws were in three main categories. There were social laws, ritual laws, and moral laws. Now, the social laws had to do with how they interacted with each other in their daily lives, how they handled conflict, how they made a living, where they planted, what they ate, and so on. These social laws no longer apply to us because we're a different society now with a completely different set of circumstances. Then there were the ritual laws, and those had to do with worship, 
and their sacrificial system. These existed to separate the Jews from Egypt. Egypt basically thought every animal was a god or goddess, pretty much except for the pig. So God basically tells the Jews that the pig, pork, is forbidden. It should be your sacred animal, and it still is. Uh, in a sense, they can't eat it. And he sets up this system where they offer sacrifices for worship and forgiveness. These sacrifices all involved animals that would have probably been considered sacred in Egypt. Killing many of them was punishable by death. These no longer apply to us, obviously, because we no longer have a sacrificial system in the temple, because Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God who we consume and we become temples ourselves. We are the church. It is no longer a building and we no longer worship that way. However, the third category of laws are moral laws, and those had to do with the way we are simply as humans, the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God, and how we're meant to live and treat one another. These moral laws are tied to our desires for fulfillment in love, belonging, truth, goodness, and beauty, so they still apply to us today. So if you ever hear people criticize certain beliefs from the Bible, or they quote these obscure laws from Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy, we no longer practice them because they're not part of the moral law. There are these social laws we no longer practice because we're not Jewish, or ritual laws because we no longer uh, worship in a sacrificial temple system anymore. But the moral law still remains. And Jesus expands it, deepens it, because God wants to help us live a moral life, which is a life that fulfills our every desire in the way that is most true and most good and most beautiful. So he gives us the grace to live out the theological and cardinal virtues we talked about last time, and he teaches us how we should live. Ten of those laws that teach us how to live are called the Ten Commandments. You find them in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, which are the Ten Commandments we will be exploring in the next several episodes. Now, the first three commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and the other seven concern our relationship with others. But each one of them calls us to not only avoid a certain immoral behavior, and as a result, um, you know, be free from sin, but it infers that we are also called to pursue and build particular virtue, virtues. So what I mean is these are not simply a list of should nots, but they're really invitations to turn away from one type of life to another more fulfilling path and type of life. So the first commandment says this, I, the Lord, am your God. You shall not have other gods besides me. Pretty straightforward. You know, when we make a commitment to God, we commit to him and him alone. It's the same thing when we get married. I basically say, like, I'm your husband and you should not have any other husband besides me. It's like kind of expected, right? Uh, this commandment calls us to believe in God by living out the theological virtues. Remember, those are faith, hope, and love. So what are they? Faith is a res uh, personal response. Faith is a personal response to the Lord's invitation into relationship. So faith is not a list of teachings and beliefs. Being faithful to my wife does not mean that I just do things for her and memorize information about her. It means I'm in relationship with her and I am faithful to her each day. And I have to trust that she will do the same, but I can't follow her around 24-7 to make sure. Well, I could, but that would be wrong. But <laughs> Our faith in God is the same. We may not understand or know everything he's doing 24-7, but we have to trust and have faith in him because he is always faithful to us. He alone is our God. Hope, the second theological virtue, is what gives us confidence that God is with us on our journey through life. 
and that he will guide us ultimately to eternal life with him. Without hope, we can either fall into presumption or into despair. So presumption basically says that we think we'll be saved or get into heaven without any real commitment to living a good life, or we just presume that God will do everything and we don't really need to respond or live in a way that um, is very vocal, that shows that we believe in God. We just think like, oh, I'm, I'm a decent person, so I presume everything will be fine. That's a lack of hope in, in Jesus Christ. And then if we completely lack hope in him and abandon all hope, then we might fall into despair. That, on the other hand, is the belief that there is no hope, that we cannot possibly be saved. Both of these paths or attitudes reject God as our Lord. They basically turn us into ourselves, either to our achievements, and which we presume will be fine, or to our sins, which we have despair that won't be forgiven. Those things cannot rule over us because he alone is our God. And lastly is love. God is love. We're made in the image and likeness of God, so we are made in the image and likeness of love. Our mission in life is to love and be loved, but love authentically and sacrificially in the way that God shows us in the person of Jesus. In fact, someone asks Jesus this in the gospel. It says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. Jesus there is actually quoting something in Deuteronomy called the Shema, which I believe we've talked about before. But we basically, we sin against our call to love God when we don't love him with all our mind, heart, and soul. When we fall into things like indifference, ingratitude, when we're lukewarm or slothful, or even if we're hateful toward God. But when we live in love, we live out of the recognition that he alone is our God. Not just my God, but our God. And that should affect how we treat each other and how we worship God in love. The main way that we sin against the first commandment and against these virtues uh, of faith, hope, and love is through idolatry. Now, you may be thinking, I'm good. You know, I don't have a golden calf I bow down to and worship in my backyard or make sacrifices to. Um, By the way, if you're actually doing that, that is also bad and you shouldn't do that. But in fact, it is important to mention that we are told in this commandment uh, to not worship graven images. Now, that can be a lot of things. But for Catholics, we have to pause for a second and recognize, like, we have a lot of images. We have a lot of statues and icons of Mary and of the saints. And for us, we know from Scripture that that's okay because we don't worship these. We don't pray to these holy men and women. We ask them to pray for us, to remind us of their example of how we should worship God and God alone. It's basically the same as putting up pictures of loved ones we want to remember in our homes. We look at them to remember who they were, not to worship them in some sort of shrine. That would be idolatry. So idolatry is when we prioritize anything above God and put it in the position God should have in our hearts. We put faith in other things when we lose hope or have hope only in ourselves or when we love ourselves more than others. All of those are idolatry. So when we look to something or someone else for our ultimate fulfillment, it becomes an idol. It could be a relationship, money, a job, a certain number of followers, a college degree, a GPA, whatever it is. If we obsess, worry, and chase after it more than we chase after the Lord in prayer, we have a problem. You can and should work on this anytime. 
but when this video premieres, we'll be in the season of Lent, and this is a really good time to get rid of idols through fasting and almsgiving and replacing those things with time in prayer with our one true God, because he alone is our Lord. In fact, the first words Jesus uh, says that were ever written down were written in the earliest gospel, which is the gospel of Mark. And this is what Jesus says. He says, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Pay attention to that. In order to pursue the kingdom, we have to repent first, which means to turn away and then believe. So what must we turn away from? Well, we have to turn away from the idols that we worship. And we have to worship the only one who truly deserves our praise. And because God deserves our praise, we have reverence for him and for his name. That's the second commandment. The second commandment says, You shall not invoke the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you remember all the way back to episode 3, we talked about the importance of the fact that God reveals his name to us. That it is an invitation into relationship. Hi, how are you? My name is... That's what God wants with us, a relationship. Now, it does not bode well for a relationship when one person then goes and speaks dishonorably about the other or even invokes their name in vain. Can you imagine every time someone stubbed their toe, they cursed by saying your name? It'd probably make you feel pretty negative that you were always being associated with bad things, despite the love you had for the people that did it. Now, the Jews had such reverence for God's name that only the high priest could say it aloud, and that was only once a year. They usually addressed God as Adonai, which means Lord, and every time they said it or even thought it, they would bow their head in reverence. They still do it to this day. When they spell Adonai or God, they write dashes for some of the letters so they don't spell the whole thing because they have respect for his name. What do we do? Well, we abuse it and curse it uh, as a curse word, or we diminish it by using it in everyday vocabulary like it's nothing. Respect for a name is a sign that we have respect for the person. And Jesus' name actually contains his power. It says that in the Catechism. But the one name that contains everything is the one that the Son of God received in his incarnation, Jesus. That's the power of God's name, that it harnesses his very power in itself. And the Jews only ever used God's name in praise, in respect, and in prayer. We are called to do the same. We need to honor him by not disrespecting him and not using the voice he gave us to dishonor him. Rather, we must proclaim the power of his name even in the face of persecution. One of my favorite scenes in the Acts of the Apostles is in chapter 4, where Peter and John, they end up before the Sanhedrin. And this is the same court that condemned Jesus and conspired to have him crucified. They tell Peter and John to stop preaching the name of Jesus. This is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And risking death, Peter does not dishonor or go against preaching in God's name. He refuses and he says this, It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. And they let him go. We have one God. Everything else we value, pursue, or seek fulfillment in is temporary. When we die, our possessions, our achievements, and our relationships will not come with us. But God will be there to either welcome us home or respect the decision we have made to reject him and stay in our sin. In the end, he alone is our Lord. So if someone were to look at your life, observe your actions, and listen to the things that you say, would they be able to tell that the thing you valued most in life was your relationship with God? Would they have heard you proclaim his name boldly or use his name in vain? 
What are the idols in your life? I invite you to tear them down and place God on the throne of your heart, honoring him with your lips and your life so that others will desire to know him. Thank you.